verses. Here we go. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as, as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God, that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those, who also, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by the man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also Christ shall be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is expected, accepted who put all things in subjected under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why, why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. But someone will ask, how are the dead... How are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each of us seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is, there is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead, what is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. Oops, I lost my place. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. It is, not the it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man was from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust, and as is the man of heaven, so also 
are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Pray with me as I welcome Josh to the stage. Father, I just praise you that we get to just gather together this morning, um, God, to, to worship you, to praise you, Lord. And God, I just, I just praise you that you initiated with us first and that we get to respond to you, Lord. And God, I just pray that you would work through Josh this morning. Would you speak into our hearts and into our minds, Lord? Um, just whatever you want to speak to us. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks, Mark. Joy, yeah. Uh, good morning, guys. Good to see you, many of you. Uh, there's a women's retreat this weekend, and I was, I'm always worried on women's retreat weekends it's going to be like a dude fest in here, so, or like a um, by default men's retreat. So anyways, um, good to see you, especially some of you ladies. Good to see you guys this morning. Uh, happy Palm Sunday to you. It's Palm Sunday, so this is the Sunday that starts Holy Week, such an important week in the life of, of different believers uh, who follow Christ all over this planet. It's a week where we remember that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey and people praised him and worshiped him. And then by Thursday, they were asking that he would be crucified. And then on, on Friday, Jesus actually did die. But no one took his life. He says, no one takes my life. I lay it down. And Jesus actually laid his life down for us by dying in our place on the cross. And we celebrate that every year on Good Friday, and, and we hope that you'll join us this Friday as we do that. And then, uh, but Jesus, guys, he didn't stay in the grave, right? I, we worship a living God. He actually walked out of the tomb on Easter Sunday, and so next week we get to celebrate that together, and I hope you'll join us for that as well. And so, Holy Week, guys, this is, this is like, this is it. Like, this is like, your whole life depends upon this week and what happened a few thousand years ago. Um, uh, I want to begin uh, this, this section here in the, in, the, in the passage that we're walking through um, by just uh, raising this um, question for you. I'm curious, have you guys seen uh, that photo of the black hole? Do you guys see this? The black hole photo? Is it up there? Yeah, that's it, right? You guys have seen this? Uh, pretty pretty uh, stinking amazing, right? Like they actually took a, a photo of an actual black hole, and they released it this week. Uh, it kind of uh, looks like the eye of, eye of Sauron, right? Lord of the Rings. Any Lord of the Rings fans in here, right? Um, I don't know anything about black holes, but just looking at this, I'm like, wow, that's amazing that they could capture something like this. Like, what world are we living in now? You can just take images like this and pass them along, right? It's amazing. Um, I, I read that it's located at the center of Messier 87, which is a massive galaxy in the quote-unquote nearby Virgo galaxy cluster, right? This is, this is incredible, you guys. Like, if you really think about this, this is so amazing. It, like, blows my mind. It's so stinking cool. It's, it's incredible. Um, but, but I have a question for you. If you are with, like me, and you, you like this kind of stuff a little bit, like, and you think this is cool, I have a question for you. Does this change your life at all? Like, when you, if you saw this image this week, did this change your life at all? N no, right? Not at all. If it did, I mean, maybe you're like a Lord of the Rings fan. You're like, it really does exist. I don't know. Like, maybe it did change your life in that way. But, but I'll be honest with you. This is not going to change the way that I'm going to live tomorrow. Not at all. Um, it's amazing to look at. It's incredible to think about. But at the end of the day, it changes nothing about my life. And um, some of us, I think, we, we think of the resurrection like that. 
It's, in, it's incredible to think about, you know, to dream about, to imagine. You pull it out of your pocket or you upload the photo once in a while or something. You think about it, but then you just you put it aside. It doesn't really, it doesn't really impact the way you're living. And our passage today tells us that that is not the case at all. Not the case at all. Uh, again, we're in the middle of 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to finish it next week uh, with this big crescendo that Paul has here. And this is the only chapter in the entire Bible where from beginning to end, the chapter is all about resurrection, the resurrection from the dead. And here in verses 12 through 49, Paul is doing some history, he's doing some philosophy, he's doing some basic reasoning with the believers in Corinth, and he is exerting himself to prove to them how the resurrection isn't like a black hole image. If you've seen it, if you've even heard about it, if you believe in it, then it will absolutely change the way you live. It'll shape the kind of hope you have in this life. And in fact, whether your life matters at all actually rises and falls on the resurrection actually having happened. So I hope that we can walk away with that same kind of conviction this morning that Paul is hoping these believers walk away with. And in these 37 verses, we see two basic premises. Two basic premises, they'll be on the screen behind me, I believe. Paul basically says, all right, let's just imagine if Jesus hasn't been raised. What would our lives look like? And so he spends verses 12 through 19 and 29 through 34 just sort of like giving us a glimpse of what life would be like if Jesus has not been raised. But then he also secondarily says, but in fact, he has been raised, and so this is what life is like and what it will be like. And this is, it's pretty incredible stuff. So first, if Christ has not been raised, verses 12 through 19 and 29 through 34 he says, if Christ has not been raised, he's giving you a hypothetical. Um, I don't know if, uh, if you're like me, um, have you ever like played the game with somebody? Um, I just call it, can you imagine if? I call it, can you imagine if? And I'm, I'm kind of nostalgic and I do this with Liz all the time. I'll say, can you imagine if like we never moved from the Bay Area to Corvallis 10 years ago? Like, What would our lives be like? Do you guys ever do stuff like this? I'm, I'm just weird. I think about this stuff all the time. I'm like, you know, could you imagine if we never had our fourth child? And she's like, why do you think about stuff like this? You're weird, you know? And I'm just like, well, just think about it. Like, it'd be so weird, right? I mean, just imagining what life would be like if something hadn't happened. I, I often do it. There's actually a movie about this, this very idea. It's called It's a Wonderful Life. And maybe it's taboo for you that I'm bringing this up because it's not Christmas right now. But nonetheless, It's a Wonderful Life. I don't know if you've seen it. Jimmy Stewart, right? Famous, famous actor, has this turning point in the middle of the film where he's very suicidal He's depressed, he's on a bridge, and he gets a glimpse of what life would be like for everybody else if he hadn't existed. He gets this incredible glimpse of what life would be like if he hasn't existed, and it's like his, his brother would have died, and this house would have been very different, and all these people's lives would be very, very different. Paul's wanting us to do something like that. He's like, can you imagine if, if Jesus has not been raised? He's like, let's take a glimpse of what life would be like if, he, if that hadn't happened. And the scene that he fleshes out Honestly, it changes your hope, your purpose, and how you would live your life. You see, what was going on here, why Paul is even bringing this up, is because there were at least some believers here in Corinth who had adopted a belief that there, were, there was not a bodily resurrection of the dead. They had instead adopted like a Greco-Roman sort of worldview that taught that even if there is an afterlife, if there is, then people will just simply live on in spirit or your soul. That's what will live on. And Paul really needs to address this. And, and the reason is, 
He, it's, it's crucial. He says in verse 13, guys, if there's no resurrection of the dead, if people are never raised again, then Jesus hasn't been raised. That's a, that's a big deal. Because if Jesus hasn't been raised, dot, dot, dot. He says, if you think people in general aren't raised, then Jesus couldn't have been raised because Jesus was a human. And if he couldn't be raised, then, then nobody else can. That's the logic. And so with that line of reasoning, Paul proceeds from verses 14 down through 19, and then from 29 through 34 to painstakingly prove how different our lives would be if Jesus had not been raised from the dead. And here in verses 14 through 19, he lists at least three disastrous implications if Jesus has not been raised. First, he says, if Jesus has not been raised, then everybody's faith in the gospel preaching that everyone's doing, it's in vain. There's no basis for it, right? We've placed our faith in a dead man. That's what we've done, right? And the energy that we're spending to actually like go and tell people that Jesus was died, he died for sins and was raised, we looked at that last week, right? Then we're just, we're going around and we're wasting our breath. We're wasting our time. Like we should be doing something else. But then secondly, he says, if Jesus has not been raised, then those who have proclaimed the resurrection, if you've gone out and you've told anybody about this, then you're a liar. You're spreading lies. You're misrepresenting God. You're saying God's like this and God's like, I ain't like that. That's what, that's what he says, verse 15. Therefore, if you've shared the gospel with people, and Jesus hasn't been raised, that's what you're doing. It's exactly what you and I are doing. I shouldn't lead a team to the United Kingdom this summer, right? That'd be a huge waste of time, a huge waste of money if Jesus has not been raised from the dead. Thirdly, he says, if Jesus has not been raised, then man, you're still in your sin. Verse 17, you still stand guilty before a holy God. You're still enslaved to your sin. You're still without hope. For if Jesus has not been raised, then what guarantee is there that his death uh, for our sins, according to the scriptures, we saw that in verse 3 last week, what guarantee is there that his death accomplished anything? Because a dead Savior is no Savior at all. And if Jesus has not been raised, all of those who've trusted in him for their forgiveness of their sins, and now they have died, he says they're lost forever. That's in verse 18. Guys, these are like disastrous realities. I hope you like feel it. So Paul ends by saying, man, if this is all true, then we should be the most pitied people on the planet. So he says in verse 19, he goes, if this is true, then man, uh, you know, people should look at us and they should be like, oh man, poor, poor Dan, poor Jamie, right? I mean, look at what they're doing with their lives, right? They're risking so much, they're, they're sacrificing so much, like, oh, so sad, you know? We should be the most pitied people on the planet. But it doesn't stop there. If you keep going, you jump down to verse 29, Paul points to the activities of these believers as well as to his own and he says, well, why are we living this way if Jesus hasn't been raised? And he points out something that they're doing for one reason or another. They're doing this thing in verse 29. He says, why are you baptizing people on behalf of the dead? Why are you doing that? And that sounds really weird to us, and it should sound weird to you. Um, this verse has been really kind of questioned for centuries, and many people have thought that people were being baptized on behalf of deceased people. The idea goes maybe somebody did have a belief in Jesus, but they died before they could be baptized, and so people were being baptized on behalf of those people, okay? The interpretation is really uncertain, 
And whatever the practice was, just note that Paul, he's not necessarily approving of what they're doing, and he's clearly not even commanding them to do it. So I wouldn't recommend it, okay? Uh, no one's recommending this. He's simply pointing their actions. And he's like, if you don't believe that people are raised from the dead, and if that's not a true thing in your eyes, then why are you being baptized on behalf of someone who's dead? That, that doesn't make sense. That doesn't line up. But then he looks at his own life. He's like, man, if Jesus hasn't been raised, then why am I in danger all the time for following Jesus and, 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 do, and obeying him? Like, I'm in danger. My life is at risk. And he, he says this phrase metaphorically in verse 31, I die daily. Doesn't mean he literally dies and rises from the dead daily. He's talking about the fact that he, he's just, man, constantly receiving like opposition. And then he says, humanly speaking, which he means not literally, why do I fight with beasts at Ephesus? He, he's looking around at other believers in the world who are literally being fed to lions in the theaters in Ephesus. Uh, people would be persecuted in this way. I've actually stood in that theater in Ephesus before where they would feed um, people who followed Christ to lions. And he's going, well, man, why would we do stuff like that? He's saying, why am I doing this if the dead aren't raised? If Jesus isn't raised, why, why would we do this? Why should we, what should we do then? And what is his conclusion? What life would be like if Jesus had not been raised? He says what? Well, then we should just have a good meal. We should drink a really good drink because tomorrow, who knows? right? Let's just live in the moment. Eat a good meal, drink a good drink. Tomorrow, we die, right? It's all pointless. I'm not sure if you're familiar with um, Pascal's wager. You guys familiar with that? Blaise Pascal, he was a 17th century uh, French philosopher, and he, he wrote, his famous work was titled Penses, and in it, he talks about this idea that's been coined Pascal's wager. It's like a really, really foundational idea, for a lot of people, and it kind of led the way to existentialism thinking and a bunch of other stuff. But in it, Blaise Pascal argues that it's, it's, it's the, most, the most rational thing for you to do, if you don't know if God exists or not, it is just to believe and live as if he does. He says it's most rational for you to do that, for you to deny yourself certain things, for you to, to follow Christ, so to speak. Because at the end of your life, if you die, and Jesus, God is real, he's like, that's a benefit to you. Because you're like, oh, whew, yeah, I was right, okay? My life wasn't in vain. He's like, but if you get to the end of your life and uh, God isn't real, you're going to be kind of sad. But the loss that you're going to experience is really finite. It's like some pleasures, some luxuries in life, stuff like that. He's like, so it's more rational to follow God, to believe that there's a God. He says, because the alternative is, if, if, if there is a God and you live as if there isn't a God and you get to the end of your life and you realize there is a God, He's made me, the only way I can be right with Him is through Jesus. If you get to your life, He's like, man, that, that's, that's not very rational because the loss that you're going to experience is actually an eternal kind of loss, not a temporary kind of loss. This is Pascal's wager. So he's trying to convince people, hey, just, just place your bet on the fact that God is real and Jesus is the Son and that kind of thing, Okay. I bring it up to say a lot of people have, have believed this through centuries, and a lot of people think this way, but notice Paul's saying the exact opposite of that. He's saying, if there's no proof that Jesus rose from the dead, then my goodness, let's just party, right? Like, why would we waste our lives doing all these things, right? If, Jesus, if there wasn't proof that Jesus has been raised, let's live it up, let's indulge. 
See, he finishes these thoughts by saying, don't be deceived, bad company corrupts good morals, which he's, it's a pop culture quote for, for Paul. It's from a play, a, com- a comedy play called Menander. And he uses this reference, and his point is this, people who don't believe that Jesus was raised from the dead or that, that there is no resurrection of the dead, they're going to live like this is all there is. They're just going to live for number one. Right, because they should, is his point. That will morally shape their lives. That's going to rub off on you. You, st- you see, guys, we naturally, we naturally, we, we live our lives trying to maximize our pleasure and minimize our pain. That's how most of us live our lives. We want to maximize our pleasure and minimize our pain. We, we don't want to do anything that causes us to lose out for the sake of other people winning. Like, that doesn't make sense to us. Why, why should I lose for you to win? Why would I do anything that's costly to me for your benefit? That doesn't make sense, does it? It doesn't at all. Right? It's, it's hard to want to live in any sort of way that would cause me to do that. And honestly, without the resurrection, this is what Paul's getting at, without the resurrection shaping your life, you won't live that way. In fact, you, you can't live that way. There's no hope of you even living that way. You will just do what Paul says. You're going to have great meals as best you can. You're going to drink a lot of stuff. And tomorrow, you're just, who knows, right? It could be the end. That could be it. And it's all over. So live it up. So what do you think? What do you think of the glimpse? I'm actually curious this morning to ask you, when you look at your life, does your life exemplify that you believe Jesus wasn't raised? Now, if you don't, know Je- if you don't follow Jesus, if you're not a Christian, then I expect that to be true, right? But if you know Jesus and you claim Jesus and you're, you're saying yeah, I believe he was raised, you know, kind of like a black photo, a black hole photo kind of way, right? Does your life exemplify that you actually believe that he wasn't raised? Because Paul's saying it'll dramatically change the way you live your life. In other words, do you avoid risks? Paul's saying, I'm risking everything. And the reason I do that is because I believe there's there's a, a life beyond this one. And the way I live in this life matters. Do you live like this is all there is? Right? Just looking out for me. Do you sense that others should pity you? That when you walk around, you're like, yeah, I'm supposed to follow Jesus. Like, that's what I say I do. And other people probably look at me like, oh, man, that poor guy, he's missing all out on all the fun, right? right? Did you believe that you're still in your sins? Do you consistently live your life in a way you're like, yeah, I'm still guilty before God? Do you see the glimpse? It's, it's way more severe of a glimpse than Jimmy Stewart's glimpse. That's for sure. It's way more severe. Or maybe you believe Jesus was raised. But again, it's, it's like the, the black hole photo. Right, you glance at it now and then, but it, it really isn't changing your life all that much. In other words, you've been taking this thing for granted, and this glimpse is meant to wake you up with gratitude this morning as we enter into Holy Week. That's what it can do. Because when you see the glimpse of, of, of what could be or what could have been, we see what we're, what we're missing out on. Glimpses are meant to show you how good you've got it. Again, it's, it's women's retreat weekend, okay? And there's only this weekend and maybe one other weekend a year where I'm a single parent, all right? And every weekend that this happens, when my wife leaves, okay, um, I immediately 
I'm woken up with gratitude for my wife. Because I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm still a pastor. I still have to do that stuff. And I'm still a dad. And I have no help, right? And so all weekend long, I'm like trying to, you know, take care of the kids. Basically, I'm just trying to keep them alive, keep them well fed. They don't eat as well, you know. But nonetheless, they, they eat a lot of ice cream, watch some good movies, right? And uh, we have a great time, okay? But every time my wife leaves, I'm immediately like, wow, when that is vacated, when she's vacated in my life, and I get a glimpse of what life would be like if she weren't here. Some of you guys know what I'm talking about this weekend. I immediately are like, wow, I'm so grateful. Because Liz's presence in my life really changes a lot of things for me. My life is very different when she's present. And so, man, I I can't wait for this afternoon. It's going to be great. It's going to be a good day, right? But, but you get the idea. Glimpses are meant to show you how good that you've got it. This glimpse should hopefully show you as you enter the Holy Week how good you've got it. And that is like the greatest understatement I could ever make to you. So now that we've just lingered here for a minute on what life would be like without Jesus' resurrection, God wants to fuel your heart, your mind, and your soul with the truth of what life is like and what will be. This is where he points your eyes. He says, starting in verse 20, in fact, Christ has been raised, dot, dot, dot. And he shows two things, these two great realities. He's like, because Jesus has been raised, guys, uh, the world will be different. There's a new world coming. He says, but also, since Jesus has been raised, if you put your faith in him, there's there's a brand new you coming. There's a new world and a new you. He lays out the new world in verses 20 through 28. Again, look in verse uh, 20 with me here. It says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He goes, in fact, again, he, last week, verses 1 through 11 of this chapter, he says, he, he showed us how this is factual, how God appeared to all, Jesus appeared to all these people when he was raised. If God raised Jesus from the dead, then Jesus truly was the first fruits, is what Paul's saying here. In other words, he's the first of many others who would also be raised from the dead. In terms of, of the, the term first fruits actually refers to a, an agricultural crop. You guys, you guys know anything about agriculture, right? Some of you? I don't know anything about agriculture. But unless I do know one thing, first fruits is just the first sample of an agricultural crop, and it indicates to you the nature and the quality of the rest of the crop that's going to come. You know, this is what this crop's going to be like when you look at the first fruits. He goes, therefore, Jesus' resurrection body, when you see it in the Gospels, it's giving you a foretaste of what believers will be like one day. It's showing you that. And since Jesus was the first fruits, God is creating something new. Something is, is coming, and we're getting a glimpse of what that looks like when we look at Jesus, who is being referred to in these verses here as the second Adam. God is creating a new world through a new Adam. Verses 21, for as by a man, referring to Adam, came death, by a man, referring to Jesus, has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Just press, just press in here for a second. This is like so important, right? This is actually one the biggest idea of this whole passage, okay? You see here this phrase, in Adam, like this, your life depends on this stuff, okay? Hey, Adam here, he, we're being told, he represents the entire human race. 
that Adam was the first man, and, and from him all other humans have come. And the first Adam did not listen to God. He wanted to go his own way. He rejected God, and because of that, he sinned. And now every single person that's been born, which is all of you and me, we are in Adam. We are born with original sin, meaning that we are born needing a Savior. We all are born that way. I have a sin problem right away, and I need a Savior, okay? We have a problem, and we're all born into this Adam, right? God made the world. It was perfect. It was beautiful in his eyes. It reflected him in all of his loveliness and his glory. But when Adam sinned, we're told here that death comes as a result of that. That might sound weird to you. Why? This is so important. Because once sin entered the world, death is a natural response or curse to give in response to sin because God created the world to be perfect without sin. So why would you want to let sin go on in an eternal sort of way? God goes, no, I'm going to put an end to this thing. The world is not going to be like this one day. So death is a natural response to sin entering the world because it's not the way God designed it, right? And so death comes, right? But now the alternative is here. Guys, by faith, you can, no longer, you can be, in a way, no longer united to Adam, but actually united to Jesus, the second Adam, the better Adam, Jesus. Jesus perfectly obeyed God, and therefore everyone who believes in him is affected by his obedience. You've become united to Jesus and not just Adam, and we do so not by being physically born, but by being born again. That's what John chapter 3 talks about. We aren't united to Jesus biologically, we're united to Jesus by faith. That's what happens to us. But look here, guys, so, so God's creating a new humanity, okay, this is, this is like so important, okay, your life depends on it. But look here, what is it that makes the new world so good? What is it that makes the new world so beautiful and so right? Well, look, look in verse 24, what does it say? Then comes the end, the new world, right? When he delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule, every authority, every power. What makes it so good is this rule that Jesus has. These, these three words here, rule, authority, and power, emphasize that in that day, there's going to be no governing power of any kind. That's gonna, everything is going to be completely subservient to Jesus. Everyone is going to bow to Jesus. Everyone is going to follow Jesus. Do you see this? What makes this new world so amazing is because Jesus is ruling everything and everyone. What do you think of that? I mean, and he uses this phrase, everything's going to be under his feet. That's the phrase you see in verse 27. And that maybe is a weird phrase to you. I'm not really sure. Maybe, maybe this helps. I don't know. Maybe it's a terrible idea, but... Just think of it this way. I, when I sit down in a chair, I love to put my feet up, okay? I don't know what it is. Maybe, maybe you're like me. I like hate putting my feet on the ground. Probably weird, okay? Uh, but when I sit in a chair, I put my feet up on an ottoman. I put it up on a footstool or something. Let's say we're hanging out, and, uh, and I'm sitting there. I'm like, hey, I just really want to put my feet up. So, Rob, uh, can you get down? I just need to put my feet up. And I put my feet on Rob. Rob's under my feet, Okay? I would never do that to you, Rob, just so you know. But um, if I did do that, right, what does that say about my relationship with Rob? Rob? Rob serves me. I'm an arrogant dude, 
is what it says, um, that means that I, I think I'm better than Rob, right? The reason why I'm arrogant, though, is because I'm not better than Rob. Right? I, I, Rob doesn't owe that to me. But that relationship, that image states that Rob serves me, right? In no way, shape, or form is God arrogant at all. God is worthy of everything he, he receives, right? And he's not just an, an arrogant God. No, he's a, he's a serving God. He's a giving God. But nonetheless, the image is still there. What this shows, if everything's under the feet of Jesus, that means everything is serving Jesus. And what's the end result of the new reality? Well, what's this, what's this great end result that this new world that, that's coming? When all things are under Christ's feet, since Jesus has been raised and everything's under his feet, what's the result? What's, what's the great thing about this world? What does it say? God will be all in all. Not in the sense that God will be everything and everything will be God, as some Eastern religions teach, but in the sense that God's authority over everything is going to be eternally established, never to be threatened again. Does this, like a, does this excite you guys? Do you see what Jesus' resurrection means? It means a new humanity, a new creation is coming. But what makes the world so great is that God is ruling everything. Is, is that how you see God's rule in your life? Like when I'm talking about the authority of Jesus over your life, and you just think about obeying him and following him regardless of what he says to you, are you like, yes, that's what I want? Is that what you're after? Or, or do you want Jesus to just kind of fix some things in your life, but, but not be the one who you listen to and obey regardless? Is that, is that what you want? There should be a quote on the screen from a, a pastor named Kevin DeYoung. He says, you don't need to be born again. There's that idea again, being born again. You don't need to be born again to want Jesus to fix your life. You do need to be born again to want Jesus to be Lord of your life. That's so true. It doesn't take like a new heart, a new affection uh, for God to realize there's things wrong with my life that I need to be fixed. And it's so easy to look to Jesus as just another means to an end to fix a problem you have that you can't fix yourself. And just look to him as Mr. Fix-It. But then I, I, I go on ruling my own life. But that's what got me into my mess in the first place. But, but, but God does need to do something in my heart. He needs to to, to reach in, to soften my heart, to regenerate my heart so that I can actually come to a place where I go, you know what, I don't want to rule my life. I want you to rule my life. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means to be born again. This is like the goal of resurrection, the place that we're headed. This is what makes heaven so great. It's Jesus reigning and ruling and everyone under that rule, but there's more because not only will the world be made new, you're going to be made new. That's what he spends so much time talking about in verses 35 through 49. And Paul begins this section here by anticipating someone's question. He's like, maybe someone's going to ask me this. That's what he starts with. Maybe someone's going to ask me this. How are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? And Paul proceeds kind of just to throw like a Hail Mary here. He's kind of like using different examples of agriculture, solar systems, right? And he's kind of just like tossing this Hail Mary and trying to answer this, you know, this question, how does this happen? And he's like, I don't know, but I've met one. I don't know what this resurrection thing ultimately looks like, but I've seen one, Jesus. And so he proceeds to try to explain what this is like. How will be new? Um, 
somebody, uh, and the, the first thing he points out here is um, that he's like, well, it's kind of like a seed. It's kind of like a seed. Um, someone gifted me some of these um, California poppy orange flower seeds. You guys know what this stuff is, right? I've probably had this for like four years. I'm not going to lie. Okay, it just sits on my shelf. And um, uh, I always think I'll plant it someday. But then I always look, and it's like, plant it during this time of the year. I'm like, well, it's not that time of the year. I'll do it next year, and it never happens. But nonetheless, um, my kids have seen this package many times, and they go, what is that? And they go, well, it's a seed, flower seeds. We need to plant them, and then flowers come. And they always naturally ask, well, how does that happen? And uh, man, it's weird how you really don't feel like you're that dumb until you have kids. <laughs> and they start asking you questions. And immediately, you just feel so stupid. You're like, I don't know. It's just what happens, you know? You'll learn when you get older, you know? As if I even know. And I don't know. Um, I just say, well, that's what happens, okay? Don't ask questions. And then, um, but then I thought about it more because their brains are awesome. They love, they're fascinated by all these things. And I started Googling some things and realized, like, man, this stuff, again, it's, it's like the black hole stuff. It's, like, really amazing. What happens is, you know this, you put the seed in the earth, right? Put the seed in the earth. And then water <laughs> hits the seed, right? This is what we got here, right? Water hits the seed, and that begins to activate something, right? The hard shell becomes soft. It splits open. We have the picture here. I drew this for you guys. <laughs> Just kidding. No way, <laughs> right? I could never do that. But it's amazing, right? The, the, the seed softens. It splits open. It dies. And then uh, one, sh one part shoots down as a root, and one part shoots up looking for light. And eventually... Right, with the right elements, right, you get a flower. It's remarkable. Now, I have a question for you. Are a seed and the flower that comes from the seed the same thing? Well, from one point of view, no. But did the seed become a flower? Does it have the same DNA sequence as the flower? Well, yeah. Like, if you could cut the root of this flower a little bit, you would find the same cell structures as the seed. So the answer is, is the seed and the flower the same thing? The answer is no, but yes. Right? The seed gives us this kind of category. Living things are not the same thing in the first stage as they are in the latter stage. And guys, the earliest Christians, they tried to find language to describe the resurrected Jesus, and they used the language of a seed. They, they saw Jesus die, and they saw him again. Was it the same Jesus? Yes. Did he have the same face? Yes. Did he eat fish? Yes. Did he have nail mark scars? Yes. He's the same, but he's different. He still has a body, but now Jesus exists in the form of a body that will never die again. The, the body is physical, but he can do different things. Like you, that's why you read the Gospels and you're like, what is happening? What world am I living in? It's like the doors are locked and Jesus walks in. You're like, what? Was that a typo? Like, what's happening here? You know? Is this difficult to understand? Yes. Are there things about the Christian worldview that are hard to understand? Absolutely. But think about it, guys. If Jesus has been raised from the dead, and Paul says since, in fact, he has been, the question is, what kind of world are we living in? Like, what's possible? What will be? That Hail Mary lands in the arms of Jesus, and we go, something like that, Right? Paul wants to envision that the human body is like the flower seed. It decays. It gets sick. It dies. But that's not the end. The spirit doesn't just float away. That's not what happens when you die. 
right? Verses 42 and following, Paul gets into this describing the seed as a body and how it's dying. And we all know this. We experience this. I mean, I watch my kids fall every day, and it looks awful. But they fall, and they, like, bash their head on something, and they cry for a minute, and then they just act like nothing happened. And I always think, man, if I hit my head like that at this age, I'd be out for like a week, right? I mean, it's, it's intense. You know, when I, when I fall, which it sounds like I fall all the time, but I, I, I don't, but when I, I do sometimes, okay? But when I fall, I mean, that, that hurts way worse now than when I was a kid, right? I'll wake up from sleeping and I'll be hurting, right? I'm very aware that I am perishable. I am decaying. I am dying, right? Okay? And Paul's talking about this. He says there's a natural body, referring to Adam. There's a spiritual body. There's contrast. There's temporary. There's eternal. There's, uh, Adam had a natural body, a temporary body. Jesus was raised with an imperishable body or a spiritual body. But when he says spiritual body, he's not saying an immaterial body. He's talking about Jesus was raised with this eternal body that was empowered and animated by the Holy Spirit. The thing is, guys, we aren't brains on sticks. We have bodies, and our bodies are amazing, but we aren't spirits in a prison waiting to be released. We are shot through with intentional physicality that God gave us. But we are also shot through in our bodies with this brokenness, aren't we? With like this moral compromise. I mean, we don't even have to try. We just react to things. We desire things. We do things that are just so messed up. I don't need to supply examples to you. I'm certain of it. I mean, just if you're having a hard time, just think about yesterday. Just think about stuff you did yesterday. And you're like, yeah, why did I do that? Why is it that when I'm triggered in that way or I, I reacted to that, whatever, it, like, why did I do that? You're like, man, there's things in my life that need to die. This is a good thing. And God says, yes, that needs to die. And, and one day it will. But you're being held out a promise here, you guys, that the t- decay, the pain, the struggle, the sin, it's all going to die off. It's all going to perish. And from that seed, by faith in Jesus, one day we will rise again and our bodies will be like Jesus's, the kind that you see at the end of the gospel narratives. We will no longer experience back pain, cancer, exhaustion, suffering, death, those sinful knee-jerk impulses we will be made new. I mean, come on. Talk about hope, right? Well, how? Where's our hope? We see this in Paul's conclusion, verses 48 through 49. As was the man of dust, referring to Adam, so also are those who are of the dust. As is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of Adam, the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. How, how, how do we have this hope? That when I see the Hail Mary throne and land in Jesus' arms, I'm like, that's my future. How do I have that kind of hope, right? Well, it's found in this whole idea of being in Christ. Verse 22 says, in Christ, all will be made alive. Now, follow me here. To be fair, this is a hard idea to get your head around. I mean, what does it mean exactly to be in Christ? What does that mean? That sounds weird to be in somebody. So if someone tells me I follow Christ, I get that. If someone says I'm under Christ, yes, I I know what it means to be under someone. If you say I'm saved by Christ, got it. Say I'm inspired by Christ, check. I understand that, okay? These are concepts I understand. Jesus is a leader, he's a savior, he's a Lord, but in Christ, 
Man, that seems to portray that Jesus is like a place, like a location, like I'm in the majestic theater, right? That's, that's what it seems to mean. How does that work? Well, it's an unusual way to think about Jesus, but it's, it's like, it means everything, right? Like, if this isn't true, what I'm telling you, then, man, our lives have no, we have no hope, okay? So just, here's how I can help you, hopefully. Imagine yourself at the airport today. You're at PDX. You're like, I'm sick of this rain, all right? I'm going to sunny Maui, right? So, so you want to board a plane to Maui. Maui is where you want to be, all right? What relationship with the plane do you need to have at that point? Right? Would it, would, it be help to, would it help to be under the plane? Right? To submit yourself to the plane's authority and this whole flying to Maui thing, would that help you? Or would it help to be inspired by the plane? You watch the plane fall off and you fly off and you whisper to yourself, one day I hope to do that same thing. You know? <laughs> what about following the plane? You watch it and you're like, okay, it went that direction. If I, if I go in that direction, eventually I'll get to Maui. Right? Would that help? Well, of course. The key relationship you need to have with the plane is not to be under it, not to be behind it, to be inspired by it. You need to be in it. You need to be in the plane. Why? Because being in the plane, what happens to the plane also happens to you. So if someone asks the question to you, did you get to Maui? That question is answered by the larger question, did the plane get to Maui? Because if the plane went to Maui, and if it got to Maui, and, and, and you were in the plane, then you have your answer. Right, that will have happened to you as well, right? See, at the heart of it all, the idea of being in Christ is something like that. See, according to the New Testament, to be in Christ is to say that by union with him, whatever is true of Jesus is now true of us. He died, I died with him by, when I put my faith in him. He, he, was, he was raised, I will also be raised. Jesus vindicated, I will also be vindicated. He is loved, I am loved right, and so on. Why? Because we are in him. We're on the plane. We're on the Jesus plane. That's the idea. It's kind of simple, but really profound implications. You guys, if Jesus was raised from the dead and you are united to him, you will be raised. That is your hope. That's like Easter right there. That's what this is about. Herein lies all your hopes. And since Jesus has been raised, since this is where the world is headed, since this is the reality of the world that we are living in, who you are united to is the most important question that could ever be asked of you. Which plane are you on? The man of dust or the man of heaven? Are you on the first Adam's plane or are you on the second Adam's plane? That's what Paul's saying to you this morning. Which plane are you on? Those planes couldn't be any more different because the first Adam was born of dirt. The, 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 the man of heaven is the eternal son of God. The man of dust was tempted and failed. The man of heaven was tempted and obeyed. The man of dust brought a curse to this earth that you've experienced. The man of heaven became a curse so that you could finally be blessed. The man of dust blamed his bride when he sinned. The man of heaven took the blame for his bride. The, the man of dust died and was buried and was never heard from again. The man of heaven died and he has risen. So what plane are you on? They're very different planes. Right? Whose image are you in? Since Jesus has been raised, guys, this is amazing. It's like change your life kind of amazing, not a black hole photo kind of amazing. So what plane are you on? That's the question.
Father God, we this morning, um, I pray that you would open our eyes to see Jesus as he is, to see all that he is for us, and may God that just so saturate every nook and cranny of our heart in a way that we would live with a different purpose, with a different hope, God, with a different future in mind. What I know in my own life, I know that I just want to confess, Lord, that I often don't receive your rule in my life as a good thing, and I pray you would change my perspective on that. That I would see that wherever you're leading me, God, it's the far better place. Soften our hearts. In Christ's name I pray, amen.